guess what? We're back in Haddonfield, and so is Michael fucking Myers. We're talking Halloween 4. Welcome to the Haddonfield Report. So last week, we took a trip to Santa Mira to see what was going on at Silver Shamrock Factory in Halloween 3, uh, a movie that's called Season of the Witch, even though, think about it, it only uses the word witchcraft once in the entire movie. Um, obviously, Halloween 3 bombed. The franchise was dormant for six years. So if you want to count the time between Halloween 2 and Halloween 4, it was seven years between seeing Michael Myers on the big screen. So I always say, you know, anytime I talk about these movies, I say, you have to put yourselves in the shoes of somebody going to see this in theaters back in, in this case, October 1988. You probably would have been fucking pumped. Um, because let's contextualize this a little bit. Michael Myers shows up in 1978, popularizes the slasher genre. Then the, you know, 1978, 1979, 1980, you get into the 80s. Okay, this is an era that is filled with slasher movies. It's a fucking phenomenon. Obviously, Friday the 13th is the biggest example of an 80s slasher franchise. Um, you know, between 1981 and 1988, you get a shit ton of Jason movies. You get, I think you get six Jason movies. Michael, during most of the 80s, is nowhere to be found. So, so this, this, this craze, this phenomenon that he and the Halloween franchise gave birth to is really nowhere to be found for most of the heyday of the slasher, which is really interesting. But here, at the end of the 80s, he's fucking back. And, and finally, somebody decided, all right, we got to cash in on the slasher craze. Um, so, so if you were someone who loved the first two movies, but then you had to sit through literally maybe dozens of slasher movies over the next, you know, six, seven years that were not Michael Myers movies, now this was finally your chance to see a new Michael Myers movie. Um, and, and look, I will defend Halloween 3 and this idea for an anthology series until the day I die. I think that'd be really cool. But we also have to admit, more Michael is, it's a good thing, right? It may not be what Carpenter wanted, but it's badass. Um, and, and it is, you know, thinking about 1988, it would have been so badass to sit down in the theaters and know that Michael Myers is about to be on the big screen again. Um, you know, remember, we, we can relate to that because we had to wait nine years between Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and Halloween 2018. Um, and, and here's where I, I have to, I can't be unrealistic in my praise for this movie, you know, even if I put myself in the shoes of a theater goer back in 1988, because I, maybe I would have been disappointed by Halloween 4. I was disappointed in Halloween 2018. Um, you know, I, I, the first time I saw it, I expected it to be worthy of calling itself the definitive sequel to the 1978 classic. So, I mean, maybe if you're sitting in a theater in 1988, you expect Halloween 4 to be, you know, every bit as good as as the, the first one. Um, you know, I think, as I've said, I think it's a much better movie than Halloween 2. Um, and we're going to talk about this, but 
the story, it's more propulsive. It moves at a really nice pace, as a Halloween movie should. The characters are strong. Jamie Lloyd ends up being one of the best characters in the franchise, and I don't like kids in movies. Um, you know, well, I should say one of the best characters as depicted in Halloween 4. I won't go any further past that. Uh, Loomis is back, and the production value, even though it's, it's a step down from the first two movies, I just think overall things come together and make this a better movie than Halloween 2. But if I were sitting in the theater in 1988 and I expected it to, to match the quality of the first Halloween, I think that's just crazy. And in that case, I would have been disappointed. But beyond that, this is an underrated movie. You're going to hear me say that again and again. This is a movie that I used to not like too much, and as I'll talk about, it has really risen up the ranks in my estimation. And a lot of that, a lot of that, I don't want this to go unnoted, and it won't. I'll come back to this again. A lot of that is thanks to Dwight Little, who actually knew what he was doing. So, to his credit. So, first things first, the trend of opening credits being a microcosm for the whole movie, it continues. These are, um, these are my favorite opening credits of the whole franchise. I know, you know, it breaks away from the Jack Lantern theme, but this is some incredibly atmospheric stuff. You get all these shots of Haddonfield at Halloween time. I mentioned in my Halloween 3 podcast, sometimes I just, I like to get lost in the mood and the atmosphere of a movie. And this is one of those quintessential movie moments that I get lost in. Um, seriously, on a bad day, I, I will look up these credits and I will just watch them on YouTube because it feels like Halloween and it, it, it just, it makes me happy. This, it's a microcosm of the movie because this is a movie that feels like Halloween. You know, I don't know if it is the most Halloween-ish-esque, Halloween-y, I, I, whatever, the, whatever the proper adjective is. I, I don't know if it feels the most like Halloween. I think that distinction goes to Halloween 6, which, you know, we'll talk about. But this movie feels like Halloween. You know, obviously it was filmed in Salt Lake City, not in California. I, I think you can feel a difference. Um, and especially we see that in these opening credits when we see the countryside. This movie does, and I, I don't know if it gets credit for it, it does change the face of Haddonfield, but I don't think it's a bad choice. I really don't. I love what Carpenter does in somehow making California feel like Haddonfield, Illinois in the fall, even though obviously it's not. But this movie, to its credit, I think changes the face of Haddonfield for the better, um, was actually thinking a lot about this this morning. I think it's really interesting that the opening credits, it, it establishes Haddonfield as a little more, uh, yes, it's still suburban, but it's a little more of a country town. These are a lot of like agrarian rural shots, which is very interesting to me. Um, obviously, later on, we get like the redneck. So it's kind of establishing a different sort of Haddonfield. Um, and I, I was just thinking, you know, obviously this is a pipe dream right now, but if ever I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Joe Bob Briggs about the Halloween franchise. Um, I would I would want to talk to him about the choice here. He has a, um, a show, I don't know if he's still doing it, How Redneck Saved Hollywood, kind of talking about the depiction of the South and of rednecks in movies. And I'd be interested to know why he thinks the franchise made this choice uh, to kind of go in this direction. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent. But I will say, to this movie's credit, it's almost a nice balance between Carpenter's suburban vision but also like the Rob Zombie shit that we get later that people don't like. 
you have rednecks here, just like you you have them in, in Rob Zombie, but it's kind of an interesting balance between those two visions. And obviously Dwight Little had no idea, you know, that he was doing that because he didn't know who the fuck Rob Zombie was and didn't have any idea, you know, what was going to happen in 2007 and 2009. But it is interesting that he strikes a balance that later on uh, Rob Zombie really did not do. Um, not to say that he had to, but it's just, it's kind of cool. So anyway, the opening credits, they're excellent. They set the tone for a movie that really does embrace the Halloween atmosphere and it gives us a new, more authentic Haddonfield. And then we cut to the ambulance driving to Ridgemont. And again, excellent job establishing mood and atmosphere. Uh, it's dark. It's stormy. I know that's a little obvious, but it's cool. And, and maybe it seems like a trivial detail. But remember, this is the first time that we've seen it storming in Haddonfield in one of these movies. So I, I just, you know, again, I think you have to think about how awesome it would have been to just get to go back to Hanfield and see that universe getting expanded. You kind of see the lore getting added onto. Yeah, it takes away from what the original movie is all about. And on that level, yes, it does go to my rule about not being able to make a truly successful Halloween sequel. You can't truly follow up on what Carpenter did. But on the other hand, this movie, in my opinion, I think it's the most important one when it comes to creating a culture of of Michael Myers' superfans. I don't think I don't think it's a very scary movie, but it is a badass movie. And it 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 not only shapes the direction of the franchise for the next 10 years, but it it also gives birth to the Michael Myers franchise. Halloween 2 was for all intents and purposes the end of Michael's story. Halloween 4, in spite of its ending, is the first time that we get the real possibility that this is going to be a franchise, and maybe even a Michael Myers franchise, even though he's supposedly dead, you know, been there, done that. We know how these things work. So again, maybe it's not scary, but it's badass, and it's really cool to see the universe building that they're doing, and see how they are adding to the lore. And speaking of Ridgemont, I have to talk about the security guard. He is played by this guy named Raymond O'Connor. No offense to Mr. O'Connor, but man, he, he is an overactor. Uh, I love that line. Jesus ain't got nothing to do with this place. It's one of my favorite lines. His delivery is what sells it. It's it's just it's ri ridiculously dramatic. Um, but this this security guard, it's a guy who you can tell he loves his job. He he loves that he can give this dramatic tour to the Smiths Grove staff. We all know somebody like this. He he gives me like a Paul Blart mall cop vibes. He cares way too much. But in Mr. O'Connor's defense. Uh, if Joe Bob Briggs has done anything for me, it's that he has instilled a healthy appreciation uh, for B-movies and schlock. And sometimes that means I look at bad acting and I find it really fucking charming. And this is one of those cases. I should not like this scene because it's unnecessary filler. It's a lazy way to do exposition. You know, let me walk you through Ridgemont and tell you everything that happened in the first two movies. I don't, I don't like scenes where people break that stuff down. Um, you know, if, if the audience didn't see those movies, that's their own damn fault. And they might not even care. Um, I guess it's slightly better than the previously on Halloween, you know, flashback shit that we get at the start of Halloween 2. And, and you know, the stuff they do at the start of Friday the 13th sequels. But anyway, I, I don't like when they do this in movies. I shouldn't like this scene. But it's so over the top and dramatic. And, and thanks to Raymond O'Connor's performance, 
I, I think it's kind of a, a charming and a cool scene. So at this point, I'm even more sold on the movie. Uh, again, uh, Halloween Four somehow I I don't know I, I don't know what it's done, but it, it's it's really won me over. Um, because if you had asked me how I felt about this movie a couple years ago, my answer would not have been kind. I have done a lot of reevaluating of this movie. Because I think, I think when I was younger, I held this thing to a higher standard that it was just never going to meet. You know, I, I was bothered, for example, by the fact that this movie, it places style above logic. For example, Michael's, you know, fucking room in Ridgemont. You have the dim lighting, you have the random ass blue fluorescent light that's on the wall, you have the red lighting. The movie, it's not even trying to pretend that this is a legitimate, you know, facility. It's just stylistic, it's just trying to set the mood. And you know what? The more that I watch this movie, the more okay I am with that. You know, this movie is not going to be 1978. Never. I hope that one day we do get a sequel that is as scary and is as brilliant as the original. But for now, we just, we haven't. Um, so in some ways, I love that this movie, it's not even trying to be Carpenter light like Halloween 2, and instead it kind of just doubles down on style and B-movie horror, and I can honestly appreciate that. I think it's very cool, you know, um, to just address a couple other things here from the beginning before we skip ahead. Obviously, we also get Dr. Dr. Hoffman, who I actually, I really love. You know, he's, he's barely in this movie, but I guarantee that you know that, you know, uh, transfer, retire, or die line by heart, right? Don't, don't we all know that? Um, I think his, his antagonistic relationship with Loomis, it's awesome. And then, obviously, you get in the ambulance, Michael strikes, he sticks his thumb through that dude's forehead. It's brutal. And I love it as an introduction to this movie's Terminator Michael, which is what this movie does. It turns Michael into the Terminator. We're going to talk about it. It's not scary, but it's badass. It's very cool. And it makes for a good reviewing experience. You can keep going back and watching it again and again. Then we shift gears. We meet Jamie. And I think one thing that this movie doesn't get enough credit for is how fucking dark it really is. I mentioned last week that I think, I think this movie probably has the second darkest ending in the franchise behind Halloween 3. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But in general... Even beyond that, this is a dark movie if you think about it. Jamie Lloyd as a character is absolutely tragic. Um, think about her introduction in this movie. It's downbeat. This is a movie that refuses to shy away from the fact that she is an orphan. Her mom's dead. Rachel will not call herself her real sister. Um, the other kids, they taunt her for being an orphan, which is like fucking evil. You know, Jamie's an orphan. What's next? Jamie's got cancer. Like, where the fuck do you draw the line? Awful kids. Evil shit. But I really like that choice. This is a dark, dark world. And this poor girl is kind of alone in it. Um, so I like that the movie shares that sort of cynicism and pessimism about the world to some extent. But I think one thing that sets this movie apart is that I think there is a greater sense of optimism in it to some extent. Because Rachel, we know, will grow to embrace Jamie as a sister. And, 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 you know, even though it's not a movie where all loose ends are tied up, you know, and everybody lives happily ever after. But I think there's a little bit of, of optimism in it. Um, I also love just the fact that this is a movie where the killer is going after a child. I always feel like that adds some real stakes. 
Um, if we think about another franchise, without a doubt, hands down, my favorite Friday the 13th movie is part six. It might not be the scariest movie in the franchise, and I have a lot of reasons for saying that it's, it's my favorite. I just think overall, as a film, um, it, it feels like the most self-aware of itself, of film, of um, it just, it feels a little more artistic than most. I know people like the final chapter. I like that one too, but I think part six is, is my favorite in part because for the first time, I feel like there are real stakes. The movie kind of implies that the kids at Camp Crystal Lake are in danger and it feels in some ways like the clock is ticking. Jason is going after them. Um, that, that Tommy needs to stop them or he's not only going to kill off, you know, these, these annoying hypersexual teen, teen counselors, but... He can also kill the kids who are there. Um, and one thing that this movie has going for it, Halloween 4, is that Michael is coming after Jamie, you know, who is either 6 or 7 or 8 in this movie, depending on who you listen to. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, Rachel says in the movie that Jamie is 7. I trust that because that's what the movie says. But the novelization of Halloween 4 says that she's 6. And I know, I know. Just because the novelization says it doesn't make it true. I just wanted to point this out. Um, and I also wanted to point out that in Halloween 5, fucking Tina, our favorite, uh, <laughs> Tina says that Jamie is 9. That movie takes place a year later. So that would mean that she was 8 in Halloween 4. So apparently this was a hard detail for storytellers to get right. But let's say that she's 7 because Rachel says it in the movie. That's how old she is. Um, and man, I mean, holy fuck. I'm not trying to say that killing teens is somehow more morally acceptable, but trying to kill a, a seven-year-old is fucking nuts. It adds the despair that these movies need, that horror movies need. On her own, Jamie is helpless. And this becomes a movie about these adults trying to keep this poor little lonely orphan girl alive. And that to me is pretty compelling. Do I like the whole Michael trying to wipe out his bloodline thing? No, I don't. Again, this fails to honor Carpenter's original vision, but at this point, maybe that's a given for these sequels. So if you can overlook that and just take the movie for what it is, I think it's really impressive that they had the balls to make this a movie about Michael trying to kill a seven-year-old girl. But let me get this out of the way. The mask fucking sucks. Yeah, the mask sucks. I often wonder how much more respect this film would get if the mask were the original mask. Um, the guys from Way Up, they're right. This is the surprise finger up the butt mask. Uh, <laughs> I love when they start shitting on this mask. Uh, you can always count on Jay to chime in. It looks like Data from Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> but they're 100% correct. This mask is awful. Um... From what I know, the actual mold of the mask is pretty faithful to the original, but apparently they covered up, you know, all the little details and, and the nuances and the creases in the face with so much paint that it basically became too blank, too pale, too emotionless. Um, I just I just watched that that Berkshire UFO episode of the Unsolved Mysteries reboot, which you should watch. It's fantastic. Um, and Michael, he looks like he's a fucking alien on on the ship that's that's waiting to to probe you or whatever aliens do. I hate this mask. But again, 
this is where it's really important to put yourself in the shoes of an audience member in 1988. I really would have been pissed about the mask then. I hate it now, but I've always known that it was a shitty mask. If I had seen it in theaters after seeing on the poster the original mask being advertised, I would have been pissed. This is nowhere near as good as the first two masks. And it is not the mask that is advertised on the poster. It just makes you wonder, by the way, if they knew that the mask was bad enough that they couldn't feature it on the poster, why the fuck did they think that it was okay to make a movie with it? These are, these are the things that hurt this movie for me a bit and it, it take me out of it. Because it feels like maybe the people behind the movie did not care as much about you know, those details as we the fans do. Uh, you also see like the fucking blonde haired mask later in the movie without the white paint on it. Again, it's almost like they were like, eh, what the fuck? Nobody's going to notice. And that, that lessens the value of this movie for me just a little bit. I want to know that they cared about the franchise. And I, I don't always feel that way. Um, Michael Myers, in many ways, is defined by the actor playing him and by the mask that he's wearing. So when you disregard a detail like that, it doesn't reflect well on the film as a whole. Obviously, you know, at least it's better than the shit that we get in Halloween 5. But that god-awful garbage is next week, so I will just wait to torch that shit. I do have to say, I know I've said this before, I'll just say it one more time. I could not disagree more with Jamie Lee Curtis. Watching these movies with your kids, it doesn't make you a bad parent. Halloween 4, in some ways, I'm glad that I saw it as a kid, because it was more effective then. It really was. It wasn't like I thought it was a great movie back then, but it was, it was a hell of a fun time. It was scary. I didn't really, you know, today I'm distracted by the mask. And I think that prevents it from being as scary as it should be. When I was a kid, for some reason, that mask, you know, it didn't register as looking all that dumb. It still looked scary enough, even if it was shit compared to the original. Um, you know, I don't know. This it, this movie feels like a, a pretty good time. Being a kid who's falling in love with horror movies. Yeah, watch this one. Because it's probably when your mind is, is purest and, and you can kind of go into it without being, you know, completely pissed off about the mask. Um... I, I do think, you know, whether or not it's scary, at least I think you have to give it credit for actually building suspense. I think that there is more work being done to build suspense and, and there's more seriousness and maturity on display here than there is in most of Halloween 2018. Um, I just, honestly, I feel, I feel that way. Um, so just, just a feeling. Are there little things that hold it back for me? Obviously, I put Halloween 2018 ahead of Halloween 4 in my ranking. I think it's just there There are little issues that hold, hold it back. You know, obviously, I said that not every part of this movie feels like, um, you know, feels like they, they cared about the franchise. And I, I do think that Halloween 2018, even though I have problems with it, feels like it was made by people who do love the franchise, even if I don't think they completely get everything. Um... You know, this movie, one of the things that I don't love, I don't love George P. Wilbur's performance as Michael. I think it, it feels a little oddly stilted to me. Um, you know, there, there are weird things in here, like, you know, the telepathy, I, I, I think, is, is weird. The, the dream sequence that maybe isn't a dream sequence, but probably is, but might be like a telepathic communication thing. 
I think is, is just kind of confusing and weird. Um, so this movie, I'm not going to say it's perfect. It does have its flaws. And I think there is a reason that, that I put Halloween 2018 ahead of it. I think it has, Halloween 4 has more stuff that I have to overlook while watching to enjoy it. Halloween 2018 has two things that I have to overlook. The mismanaged humor, which, you know, the more I watch it, you know, the, the, the more okay, not okay, but like the more desensitized I am to it and the sartine twist, which is always going to be fucking stupid. Beyond that though, I, I think it's a respectable movie and I think this is too, to some extent, I just think there's a little more that holds it back. Anyway, th that was a long fucking rant just to justify why I, I say that I like Halloween 2018 more than this movie. Um, <laughs> when it kind of feels like I have more good stuff to say about this one. Skipping ahead, Rachel's dad in this movie is such a dick. Uh, he accidentally like dunks his tie into his coffee and his initial reaction is to look at his wife accusingly as though she fucking dunked it in there. No, you dumbass. You weren't paying attention to what you were doing. Um, I love this scene because I think the whole family dynamic is so interesting, especially for me, whoever thinks stupid shit like this. Rachel, I just want to point this out. She's eating a bagel with cream cheese and, and a glass of milk. And her mom says, that's not all you're eating. Well, I don't know. That definitely seems like a reasonable amount of food to me, mom. And then Rachel is like, no, I'm on a diet. What do you want? An oinker for a daughter? Because this was 1988, which was a glorious time before everyone started getting worked up about stuff like body shaming and body positivity. Um, you couldn't say that in today's movie. But then we get my favorite moment of the whole scene because Rachel can't watch Jamie tonight because she has a date with Brady and she thinks that he's finally going to quote unquote make a commitment. What the fuck does that mean when you are 17 years old and in high school? She's acting like this, this douchebag is going to propose to her or something. Um, in some ways, I'm kind of glad that Brady uh, was was hooked up with Kelly Meeker because somebody just had to give Rachel a wake-up call. You're 17. He's not going to commit to you. And the icing on the cake of this whole scene is that the scene ends with Rachel's dick father suddenly claiming the moral high ground and telling her, that Jamie needs all the love that we can give her right now. So in the course of about 60 seconds, he goes from like typical douchebag 80s father to have you found Jesus? Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I do want to give the movie credit because I continue to say that what's, what sets the Halloween franchise apart from other sl uh, slasher franchises, um, you know, especially something like Friday the 13th, is that you have characters and you have character arcs. Rachel's arc in this movie, it really doesn't receive the respect or the recognition that it deserves. She goes from being this selfish little shit to actually embracing Jamie as a sister and protecting her and fighting Michael to keep her alive. That's good stuff. You watch a Friday the 13th movie and the only character arc is that some girl starts the movie wearing all her clothes and then ends the movie wearing none of her clothes. Rachel has an actual arc. This movie should get credit for that. And speaking of characters, then Loomis shows up. And guys, when he shows up, this movie shifts into another gear. Because you can talk all you want about diminishing returns in these Halloween sequels, but one thing that Halloween 4 definitely has is the best Loomis. 
I said in the Halloween 2 episode, Halloween 4 is the first time that Loomis is an actual character. And here's what I mean. In the original Halloween, he is the doctor who's trying to find his escaped patient and warn everyone that he poses a threat to their little town. But he's not much more than that. In some ways, Loomis is there for the same reason that Donald Pleasance is in the movie, to add gravitas. Halloween 2, we get an expanded version of what we got in Halloween. And I like that, you know, he's a little more on edge. I shot him six times. Yeah, I, I like that stuff. But again, he feels more like a plot device than a character. He's kind of hanging out on the fringes to, to learn more about Laurie and Michael so that the audience can get extra exposition. And, you know, he's, he's really the only reason we find out that they're siblings. In this movie, he's been through some shit. He's seen Michael Myers in the wild, as Sartain says in, in Halloween 2018. He knows that when this guy goes on a rampage, he wipes out everything in his path. But Loomis also knows that people aren't really going to believe him. And this is the first time that Loomis is an actual character. And that now, you know, in Halloween 2, we got a sense of guilt. That he was kind of grappling with guilt about the death of these girls, especially Annie. Um, you know, we have that scene with Brackett, um, which, is, which is heartbreaking. But now he's beyond just guilt. Right? Now he's over this shit. He knows that people don't believe him, that he's treated like an asshole, but he's seen again and again that Michael has proven him right. So he not only carries the weight of, of all, you know, that body count, he carries that weight on his shoulders and that guilt, but also anger that nobody is listening. And now he also feels as though it's his responsibility to find Michael and, and stop him, which he's kind of felt up to this point. But this becomes, in Halloween 4, it becomes a spiritual, existential mission for him. And indeed, the movie does something that is super weird, but it's super thought-provoking when he meets Jackson Sayer later in the movie. Um, and I'll talk about that when we get there. But you have to admit, this feels like Pleasance just finally decided that he was going to act his heart out, and he was going to play a tortured man who's in search of his greatest demon, and he's trying to vanquish it once and, for, uh, once and for all. And again, this is a movie that's full of great stuff. So why doesn't it get the respect it deserves? It gets it from the fans. But if you look at, at you know, fucking Rotten Tomatoes, which I'll be the first to tell you, fuck Rotten Tomatoes. But still, if you look at it, 20 fucking, 29 fucking percent. How? It's got issues, sure. But this is a textbook example of critics disrespecting a horror movie because it's a horror movie. Halloween 4 deserves more respect than what it gets. And again, another example of Halloween 4 having one of the best moments of the franchise is the gas station scene. This It's a brilliant scene on multiple levels. And it's one of those things where there is a reason that Halloween 2018 pays homage to the scene. Because um, it's, it's hard to top this. You know, whether it's Michael looking like a badass with the bandages on his face or the God damn you, Michael moment with Loomis. This, it's a scene that has both scares and has emotional weight. Yes, it's, it's a little cheapened at the end by the over-the-top explosions. But before that, you do get some legitimately great stuff. 
I love how Loomis is confronted with the aftermath of Michael's killings. It's just so fucking eerie. And it's it's quintessential Halloween. Um, I can just hear Dave McCray saying, yes, theater of the mind, right? Um, but that's, that's what it is. I'll even, and I'm going to keep saying this, I, I want to give the direction of this movie credit. I want to give Dwight little credit because he doesn't get enough. One thing that critics said about this movie was that it was workmanlike. I took that from an actual uh, review, that it felt slapped together, that it was just another corporate product, like a Friday the 13th movie. And I will argue that that's wrong, and that there is actually some artistry that is on display here. I've already mentioned how well the movie does establishing mood and atmosphere, but I think there are two small choices um, that are made in the scene that I think should be recognized. First of all, when Loomis discovers the mechanic's body hanging in the garage, he hurries outside and he rushes into the restaurant part of the building. I think it's, I think it's a restaurant. How did they film this? Dwight Little chose to use shaky cam. It's handheld filming. And the shakiness, the reason it's perfect is that it, it kind of reflects a lack of stability. This, to, to be clear, this is a classic choice for directors who know what they're doing. A lot of people overuse shaky cam, and it just becomes like a cool thing, especially in today's world. But that's not what shaky cam can be. Directors who know what they're doing, they use it in a moment where characters begin to lose a sense of stability. And when, when Loomis, you know, this is a moment where things are starting to unravel, and he knows not only is Michael gone, but I'm about to confront him. He's killing again. Um, you know, stability, things are falling apart. And then, boom, he comes face-to-face, -face, or face-to-fucking bandages, with Michael. And Dwight Little uses this awesome pan. It's not quite a whip pan. You know, it's not fast enough for that, but it's close. And this is where I think we actually do start to see a sort of directorial trademark. We get to see that it's not just, it's not Carpenter directing this time. It's somebody else. This is a more stylized choice than what we get with Halloween and Halloween 2. Obviously, Halloween 2 is Rick Rosenthal trying to be John Carpenter. And I often think the goal with Carpenter, his goal with his direction, is to be subtle and not call attention to the fact that there is someone behind the camera. I always say, as a point of comparison, right, to somebody like Carpenter or somebody like Chris Nolan, who also, in some ways, doesn't really like to call much attention to his direction, likes people to focus more on the movie, as a point of comparison, look at somebody like Quentin Tarantino, who's doing crazy shit with the camera all the time, right? But unlike Carpenter or Rick Rosen, Rosenthal in, in Halloween 2, Dwight Little, he shows this willingness to be a little more stylized. Um, and he does this later on and, and, you know, at different points. We get Jamie running in slow motion when we hear the kids yelling, Jamie's an orphan. And I think that's a perfect choice. I think that's a beautiful shot. It amplifies the emotion of the scene. So I think the direction here, you know, it's not always perfect, but it doesn't get enough credit. And I will say, again, because I mentioned it, that Halloween 2018 pays homage to this scene, which is great. Halloween 2018 it would have impressed me more if from the get-go it had been advertised as a love letter to the Halloween sequels like Halloween 4. And that's kind of how I view it today, and I like that. That's badass. Don't advertise it as the sequel to the original. Advertise it as a love letter to the sequels. Anyway, not to get off topic. It's a terrific scene. And the fact that it's been paid homage to 
you know, at this point a couple times, it should clue us into the fact that it's a great movie. Very quick note, just to say, Jamie gets picked up from school, and it always boggles my mind that this is supposed to be Lindsay Wallace. But the movie never explicitly tells us that it's her, it's just, it's Lindsay. Don't you think that's an important distinction to make? Like, why not do more with the character? It just, that to me feels like a weird missed opportunity. And I'm hoping, and I, I have a pretty good feeling, that Halloween Kills will do more with that character. Um, they go over to the, the, the discount mart to get a Halloween costume. This is a really minor detail, but this is my time to say it. Is it just me? Or when the movie cuts to this discount mart, is there a little nod to A Nightmare on Elm Street? Because we get the shot of some product that's called Living Nightmare, and then we get, like, um, it's like a reddish demonic face that, at a quick glance, maybe has some similarities to, like, Freddy Krueger. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too far into it, but my mind always goes to A Nightmare on Elm Street when I see that. And I've always wondered if it was, like, a, a little visual gag. Um, just kind of recognizing that since Halloween went away, you have these other slashers, like Freddy Krueger, who kind of picks up the slack. Um... If that's the case, I guess it's kind of cool, but I also, I get defensive about these sorts of nods because Halloween did it first. Halloween is the preeminent slasher franchise. It just, that it feels to me like Dr. Pepper paying homage to Mr. Pitt. Um, anyway, one other thing about this scene is that I like, and this is Dwight Little, I like when the mask comes into frame as Jamie's wandering around because the filmmakers don't have to telegraph what's happening. It's just this little visual cue that lets us know that Michael is around, that he's coming, and Jamie has no idea. Um, but here's what I don't like about it. Dave McRae's right. If that mask is the one that was worn by the guy who killed 16 people on Halloween night in 1978, then why the fuck would you sell it in the town where he committed that massacre? You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't go to Aurora, Colorado and sell products with the face of the fucking lunatic who shot up the theater. You just you don't do those things. So this to me, this is the challenge of having Michael find a new mask in these movies. And that's why I'm really hesitant about this idea of maybe him finding a new mask in Halloween Kills. I don't know how you do that in a way that feels natural and logical. Um, I mentioned earlier Jackson Sayer. Well, he shows up. Um, you know, when, when Loomis is, is hitchhiking back to, to Hattonfield. And this is a moment, it's, it's so weird. It, it's like this religious allegory that we never knew we wanted or needed. Um, but I always look for weird moments like this, because I think weird moments, the ones that stand out to us and that we're like, huh, I think they reveal a lot about an artist's intentions. And the fact that this scene is here it tells us something about this new and improved direction um, for Loomis, this new depiction of Loomis. And in fact, I think the scene, it does a lot to develop Loomis while also building on the lore and attempting in some way to return some of the mystique that comes with Michael. Because suddenly, Loomis kind of, he's figuring out here that there's something transcendent about the battle between good and evil. You know, it looks different for different people, but the fight is universal. Jackson Sayers, you know, he's in search of, of the, the, the fucking apocalypse, whatever that means. 
and Loomis is in search of Michael Myers. I also love this because I think it, it attempts to get us back to what Carpenter wanted to some extent, with Michael representing evil. And it's kind of what, what, uh, what James Gordon says uh, about Batman in The Dark Knight Returns. He's too big. That's Michael, according to this scene. You know, he isn't just Michael. He represents some greater, more universal evil. You can't kill damnation and don't die like a man dies is such a great line. And this movie, yes, it does get Michael wrong in certain ways, but this is not one of those ways. Overall, this is a great scene, and it's capped off by Loomis's shit-eating grin when, when Sayer starts singing. Um, and again, credit to Donald Pleasance. I always see that choice as having two meanings. One, I think he sees the humor in this crazy old guy singing, but I also think that it's a smile that, that shows that for once, he's understood. Because sure, if Sayer is crazy, then Loomis is crazy too. But it also feels like this is a recognition of, of you know, either A, yep, we're crazy, but we're crazy together. Or B, maybe we're not crazy. Maybe we just understand what nobody else can. I like minor details. Here's a minor detail. That stupid-ass mask that's hanging on the wall of the Carruthers' house. I think this shit was trendy back in 1988. I think that, I think it was a trend. I don't know. I wasn't alive, so you know, tell me if I'm wrong. Nonetheless, I feel like it was an intentional choice to hang it on the wall and to have it so clearly highlighted in the frame because let's note that it even feels like they specifically lit this thing to call attention to it. Um, it's just, it's one of those subtle details that feels to me like it's trying to do what Carpenter did to some extent, where it gives us a little visual cue that we may or may not consciously notice that reminds us that Michael is coming and that we should, you know, we shouldn't get too comfortable. I think the pale face, it's similar to Michael. It's just, it's a subconscious reminder of this looming threat. And I, I really, I like the choice to feature it. I think that's cool. Again, this feels like the first movie in the franchise that you could actually convince me actually takes place on Halloween. And that pays significant dividends for this thing, you know, once they go out trick-or-treating. Because when you can establish the setting as well as this movie does, you enhance the mood and atmosphere greatly. Um, remember I said back in my Halloween 78 um, episode, Dean Cundy's blue and orange color scheme, you know, it would be emulated back in, uh, in, in later sequels. I said that back in that episode. This is your first indication of that, and I think it works. Um, then Loomis goes to the police station. I think it's I think it's really cool that the movie nods back to Sheriff Brackett, who uh, who we we learn retired back in 1981. Which honestly, pretty logical. You know, you, you probably would not want to stick around after your daughter was killed. Um, and and the guy who's taken over is none other than Ben Meeker. Um, I love, I love Ben Meeker. I think, I think, you know, Brackett was such a solid character. Um, that's a really hard act to follow, but Ben Meeker, I think as a character, uh, is actually a really commendable, um, follow up here. One of the reasons that I love Ben Meeker, and I think one thing that sets him apart is that he respects Loomis and he's willing to listen to Loomis from the get go. Which, again, is logical. 
Loomis has been through some shit. Of everyone in this movie besides Lindsay Wallace, who apparently is Lindsay Wallace, he's the only one who experienced Michael's rampage. So if this guy's telling you that Michael is back and that you need to be worried, why wouldn't you listen? This is also where the movie loses me a little bit because it turns into a situation where everyone, including these angry rednecks, is on the hunt for Michael. And I'm never sure how I feel about that dynamic. You know, um, I like it when Michael or when any slasher is the apex predator and everyone else is kind of powerless. But again, if we're looking at this as a badass movie and not a scary one, then I'm okay with it. And, and now that I know what to expect, that's definitely what I'm expecting from Halloween Kills. Badass and not scary. By the way, Halloween Kills and that plot with everybody going after Michael, I mean, another example of, of David Gordon Green and, and Danny McBride paying homage to Halloween 4. So, just saying. Another note about the direction, to give Dwight Little the credit he deserves. Uh, acknowledge that that when, when Meeker, when he agrees to go with Loomis, Dwight Little goes back to shaky cam. He only uses it a couple times, but anytime he uses it, it's intentional. Again, Meeker, he was having a normal night, and this is the turning point. This is when things fall apart. This is when stability is lost. And since I just mentioned the angry rednecks, their presence in this movie is one of the elements that cheapens it for me. Um, the soundtrack, when they head off on their, their little mission, it's just, it's kind of cartoonish. And, and they're, they're more caricatures than they are characters. But if you've got Terminator Michael, I guess you might as well pit him against a redneck army. Sure, you know, what the hell. Um, and speaking of Terminator Michael, I love the scene when he kills Bucky, who, by the way, am I the only one who thinks that that actor, Harlow Marx, uh, I mean, in this movie, I feel like he looks just like Trevor from GTA V. Um... Anyway, he tries to play tough guy with Michael, and that never makes sense to me. Why the hell would you try standing up to Michael? In general, in horror movies, I don't understand why people try standing up to these guys. If I came across Michael, I, I, I'd offer to clean his knife, or, or you know, if I knew I couldn't get out, or I'd you know, just run away. But a fucking power worker is, is like, okay, you know, you're a tough guy, stay right there. So Michael tosses him into a Transformer. Again, Terminator, Michael. Um, it's also a badass move because now you've knocked out the power in Haddonfield. So while sometimes the scope of the movie throws me off, I also have to acknowledge it is pretty cool that you have a large fraction of Haddonfield that's coming from Michael, but now you also have Michael taking on Haddonfield. It doesn't make for a scary movie. But it makes for a, a hell of an entertaining experience. And again, I'm going into Halloween Kills with this mindset. Not that I'm going to get a masterpiece, but that I'm going to get something like Halloween 4, which is just a good a good time. Um, you know, like, yes, there are certain things in the movie that, that cheapen it for me. I mentioned the rednecks just now. Um, I also hate when you get the fucking pranksters that show up and they surround the cops. That It's just, it's a cheap fake out. And it's, it, it feels especially stupid when you have, like, multiple Michaels showing up and standing around. Uh, it, just, it just feels unnecessary. I don't like it. Um, but I will say the payoff is great when you get Michael standing behind the police car as they, as, as they drive off. But nobody noticed him? Hmm. Okay. Um, 
they go back to the police station. Obviously, Michael wiped everyone out. And this is an interesting moment for me and something I want to talk about because I think this is where there is a philosophical divide in terms of the fans of this franchise and what they want from Michael. I'm with Dave McRae. I think, you know, the theater of the mind that's on display here is fucking awesome. We can imagine the rampage, and that's eerie. The movie is, is doing a really nice slow burn, much more effectively than Halloween 2. This is an artful slow burn. I really like this shit. It feels dramatic. It feels badass. Um, and it feels eerie. It feels effective. Uh, Halloween 2, I mentioned, tries to do a slow burn. It just alternates between being violent and being boring. This movie, you know, up to, up to this point, it's been mostly off-screen kills. Um, I know that bothers people, but for me, it displays a sort of patience, a willingness to build up to good stuff later. Um, but that's the theater of the imagination side. On the other side, you have the guys from Wham! who think that this movie should have shown the police station massacre. Um, I know they love the Halloween 6 hospital rampage. And again, I, I just, I think it's a difference in expectation. Badass versus scary. This movie is attempting to build suspense and tension. And I appreciate that. Especially because we seem to get less and less suspense and tension as the series, uh, the, the series goes on. But I do think there's a difference in expectation. I appreciate the theater of the imagination on display here. I think there's there's more restraint and an effort to do something um, that isn't just over the top, um, but but is is kind of trying to to respect Carpenter's original wishes a little bit. Um, I think that this is one of the last times that we see that. And again, in defense of this movie, especially in defense of this movie against Halloween Two which is so often wrongly considered to be the better movie. Uh, let's think about the plots of these stories. Halloween 2, the plot is basically that Laurie has to go to the hospital. Michael shows up. He looks for her. He kills a bunch of people along the way. We learn from Loomis um, and, and some of these side characters, like uh, Marion Chambers, who comes back, um, that, that they are siblings. And then at the end, there's a big chase. Loomis blows himself and Michael up, and that's it. Halloween 4, sure. You could say that it, it all kind of amounts to just another Halloween night killing spree, but the movie adds a lot of interesting things throughout. Uh, it adds these plot elements that keep the story moving in a way that Halloween 2 just doesn't. It doesn't continually add enough fresh stuff. This movie, I think it does add some new wrinkles. Um... You know, Michael knocking out the power in town. Michael killing the entire police department. Um, Loomis basically forming a, a, a lynch mob because the town doesn't have a police department. I think there's a lot more that's going on than just Michael going around killing people. And what I love about it, I've continued to use the word logical. It is. It is so damn logical. Um, Dwight Little explained in an interview with Starburst Magazine, which is a real thing and I think has no connection whatsoever to the candy. Um, I'll, I'll just quote him because I think his, his quote is, is excellent. He said, We always wanted to be realistic and not just part of some horror movie trope. The reason he got out of the ambulance is that we needed him to get free. The reason he goes to the diner and kills the mechanic is so he can get his outfit, his coveralls. The reason he blows up the gas station 
is so that we can get the telephone lines down. The reason he goes to the drugstore is so that he can get his mask. The reason he throws Bucky into the power lines is so that we can knock the power down in the town. So we wanted to make everything about his slow approach to Hanfield. We wanted everything to be believable. We didn't want it to be tongue-in-cheek. I mean, here's the thing. First of all, you need to read this interview with Dwight Little if you haven't, because you walk away with such an immense appreciation for him. Um, and that's part of what has informed my perspective on Halloween 4 and what I'm saying in, in this episode. Um, he obviously knows his stuff, both as a director, but also as a Halloween fan. Um, you know, he's the one who viewed Michael as evil on two legs and wanted him to be that in this movie. He wanted this to be a slow burn. He refers to Michael, you know, in the interview, he says that Michael in this movie is an approaching storm, which is language that I think is very similar to what Dave McRae has talked about. Uh, and Dave McRae knows his shit too. That's exactly right. Um, you know, uh, he was very conservative and sometimes I forget how conservative he was about showing Michael, um, because Dwight Little really, it keeps him off screen for most of the three, you know, the, the first three quarters of the movie. Um, which in my opinion, that's, it's a better choice than Halloween two When, when we just, we spend so much time just following him around. Um, so, you know, no, this is not a perfect movie. It, it is a step down from, you know, not, not just a step down. It's, it's, it's a big step down from, from Halloween 1978, but Dwight Little, I mean, really, he impresses you with his film knowledge and his awareness of what Carpenter was going for in the first two movies. Um, mm, yeah, to some extent, first two movies, uh, I guess first movie. Yeah. Second movie, we, we all know how Carpenter felt about that. So I take that back. Uh, I also want to give the movie credit because it's smarter than the average slasher movie. Because usually in these movies, people, they're alone. They're vulnerable. You know, you have the, you have the girl wearing barely anything at all, walking through the woods alone. Hello? Who's there? This isn't funny. Okay. Look, don't get me wrong. Vulnerability does a nice job that is, you know, establishing the sense of despair needed for a horror movie. But you also sometimes want to ask, why not just team up with others? Strengthen numbers. And that, it feels to me like a more logical and realistic approach. And this is a movie where at the end, everybody kind of comes together and they, they hold themselves up in one house. Um, could they have stayed together a bit better? Yeah. You know, Loomis decides to go to the Carruthers house. Fuck them. You know, just stay here. Um, Meeker leaves because the, the lynch mob killed Ted Hollister. Again, that, by the way, that was Ted Hollister's choice. Say, hey, it's me, Ted Hollister. Okay, whatever. These are dumb choices. You shouldn't leave. But at the very least, I appreciate that they tried to handle this more logically than, than these movies usually do. But Michael still fucking wipes them out. I haven't said anything about the soundtrack, so I want to say something about the soundtrack. And I'm sorry, guys, but in this franchise, it's it's really not close. I'm going to do an episode about this, so I don't want to say too much, but the best score in the whole franchise comes from the original. And honestly, it's really not even close. The second best comes from Halloween 2018, um, even though I, I don't I don't think it's, it's used very well in the film. Um, but nothing else in the franchise is close to either of those in quality. 
Halloween 2, as I said, you know, from Carpenter and from Alan Howard, it's just, it's a huge step down from the original. Halloween 3, okay. Halloween 3, that score is brilliant, but I'm not counting it. Because uh, I, I think it's so different, but brilliant. But this score, this is when Carpenter was, was kind of gone. Now it's just Alan Howarth. No offense to Mr. Howarth, but this, it feels so much cheaper. It feels less effective than that original graveyard piano. And again, it just, it makes me wonder why they moved away from, from the original score. Why they couldn't have done that again. Um, you know, then Michael starts to kill people off here in the house. I love the Kelly Meeker kill on multiple levels. Because obviously she thinks that she's talking to, um, what's his name, Deputy Logan. Um, I, I think that's his name. We know, we know that something's up. Because we only see him from the back, not showing his face. But I think I think we assume that Logan is dead, or you know she's going to turn around, and he's going to be dead, and then Michael's going to get her, kind of like the uh, the the Doctor Mixter scene um, in Halloween Two. But it's Michael, and that that's fucking great. Um, and I love that he's holding the rifle, but because it's Michael, he doesn't shoot her. He just he tears right through her with the gun and, and pins her to the wall. Um, which maybe is a little reference to Bob in the original. I'm not sure. And again, give Dwight little credit here because he does a nice job framing and lighting the mask in the shot so that it actually doesn't look like shit. Um, then Brady's killed because he's a dumbass who doesn't know how to load a gun. Um, you should you should watch the the, uh, the making of a documentary. There might be multiple at this point about this movie. The, the dynamic between the guy who played Brady and... Um, the, the girl who played Kelly Meeker is so weird. Um, she talks about that the intimate scene that they filmed together and how they really enjoyed it. It's so weird. Anyway, look it up. Um, Brady's killed. The kill, the only reason it's gruesome is is the sound. Fear of the imagination. Um, and again, that's Dwight Little. You know, he should get credit for that. The headline for today, Dwight Little is a damn good director. Um, you also have to give him credit because the slow burn really pays off. The first hour of this movie flies by, unlike Halloween 2, which crawls. Because um, we were seeing the different steps of Michael's return. And then the last 20 minutes is when it all comes together. It's all fucking action, which is great. You know, think about what we get in the last 20, 25 minutes. You get Michael starting his rampage in the house. You get the rooftop scene, which is great. It's like kind of tense and claustrophobic because there, there's nowhere to run. Um... You get the school confrontation with Loomis and fucking blonde Michael. Um, you get the car chase. You know, that's that's the thing about a slow burn, is that if you do it right and there's something that you're actually building up to, sure, it takes a little bit of patience, but the payoff is incredible. And these last 20, 25 minutes are so damn good. I will say, not all slow burns are created equal. Halloween H2O. I don't look at that movie and say, wow, this is an incredible slow burn. That movie is just boring for the first hour. Nothing happens. The reason that the end of H2O is the best part is that it's the only part when anything remotely interesting actually happens. Um, you know, so the, the more I think about this movie, the more I weigh it against other sequels, the more I love it. As I've said, somebody just needs to do a deep fake on this whole movie and get rid of the fucking awful mask. Um... I mentioned the car chase sequence. A couple things here. I have no fucking clue how Michael was was on or was in or was under the, the truck 
the whole time. Nobody knew. I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Um, he's Michael. So he just, he found a way. But when he breaks the glass, you get that homage to the first movie with, with Nurse Mary, and he twists the, the neck of the driver. It's a gruesome moment. Interesting thing here. Dwight Little actually... Uh, when they filmed that first, it, it really it wasn't gory. It was like kind of quick, and, and you didn't get the blood like you do here. Um, that was one of three scenes that Little says had to be refilmed to add more gore because the producers felt that it needed to be more violent, which is interesting. Um, I also want to point out this scene, though. To, you know, to be fair, it's where you lose the horror of a horror movie. Because you, you see Michael in a vulnerable position. And that loses me a little bit. There's something just like laughable about seeing Michael hanging onto the truck and then getting thrown off the truck um, or like getting shot and falling into the mine shaft. I, I, there's something that just feels kind of funny about this to me, especially because it looks like he's wearing a Party City costume. Um, and of course, we have the ending. I feel as though if I'd seen this movie back in 1988, I would have been so shocked by the ending. But beyond the shock factor, if we think about it, it's just a stupid ending. I hate the, the telepathic connection bullshit that they introduce, you know, when, when she touches his hand and then she becomes a killer, I guess. You know, this is the sort of ending where it's like, um, okay, maybe surprising, maybe cool, maybe, but what's going to happen in the franchise? You know, this ending works if it's the end to the franchise. If the movie ends on this note, and the franchise ends too, and it's just a metaphor that's basically saying that evil cannot be stopped, you know, evil is intergenerational, evil is timeless. Okay, fine. But if you think about it, you know, if you think about Halloween 4 as an installment in a franchise, and you know there's going to be Halloween 5, <sighs> I mean, is it any surprise that Halloween 5 was dog shit? Because Halloween 4 ends on this note. It just, it, it feels like a mistake. You know, so I, either in Halloween 5, you're either going to focus on Jamie as the killer, which is ridiculous. Can you imagine that? Would, would you sit through that? Um, I think that Danielle Harris thought that that was going to happen. I love Danielle Harris, but you cannot make that movie. Um, you either go in that direction or you follow up on the telepathy, which is also ridiculous. And unfortunately, we'll talk about what they do. We'll break down Halloween 5 next week. Just, I'm not looking forward to it. Anyway, there you have it, guys. Halloween 4. It's a movie that I used to lack respect for. I think a lot of people still do. But it's one that I've really grown to appreciate. I hope that other people will as well. This movie doesn't get the respect it deserves. But, as I think I've said, break it down. Think about how it takes a logical and slow burn approach, it actually tries to honor Carpenter's vision of the shape to some extent. It has character arcs. It's a compelling movie. It gives us the best Loomis. This is, it's a movie worth celebrating, guys. I think this is actually a great Halloween film. <laughs> Next week, we are not talking about a great Halloween film. We are talking about a fucking awful Halloween movie. Um, I won't even call it a film. It's, it's an awful Halloween movie. Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Um, ugh, it just fucking excuse me while I vomit my brains out. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to review a movie that I just absolutely hate.
should be fun. Until then, thank you guys, as always, for listening. Uh, be sure to reach out on Twitter, and we will see you next week on the Hanfield Report.